All right. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And as we get into James chapter 4, I want you to think about Galatians 5.17. I'll throw multiple verses at you. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so as we think about our passage this morning, I want you to think about the idea that every morning that you wake up, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a few months, a few years, or if you've been a Christian for decades, we all deal with this same problem when we wake up is, how do I get what I want today? How do I get what I want today? We wake up and we must die to self immediately because that is typically our first thought in some way, shape, or form. And we must recalibrate our minds to get to the point of, I need to please Christ with my life today. And it's not about me. It starts at the beginning. It starts with a small thought first, and then it grows and grows and grows into something bigger and much worse and much more dangerous. But we must kill that thought at the beginning, at the onset, at the very beginning, because if we don't, then it will morph into something bigger and it will start to affect the external part of our life. It will turn into fights. It will turn into quarrels. It'll turn into us distancing ourselves from God and his will and sometimes without us even knowing. And so James gives us this, 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 this thought of what's happening in uh, his church right now that there are many Christians within the church that are fighting and disputing with one another. And this is thousands and thousands of years ago, but it's the same problem that we have within the church today, that many Christians are fighting and disputing with one another, and it all boils down to one reason, our desires, our selfish desires for us each individually to have what we want to have in this life, to have what we want to have in our church, to have what we want to have in our families. And if we don't deal with that at the onset of it, it leads to fights and quarrels and distance from God. But he gives us a clue on how we can identify what that is so that we can take care of it at the early stages before it turns into something much larger. So let's look at our passage, starting at verse 1. And if you remember coming out of chapter 3, he ended that talking about peacemakers. Well, now he's going to the opposite side of peacemakers, to those that cause fights and quarrels. And he says this in verse 1, chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, there's a footnote there, or pleasures that can be used, are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to, the, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I want to turn your attention to that word that I focused on in verse 1 is that passions and pleasures. It translates in English to hedonism, right? And so when we look at hedonism, we we think about self-indulgence or the lack of being able to have self-restraint with the things that we do. And when this word passions is used in Scripture, every time that it's used, it's used in a negative sense. You look at Luke 8.14, Jesus says this, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Paul also said this in Titus 3, verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You see, what James is trying to get at here is he's trying to focus in on the root, the root cause of all the disputes. The disputes may vary. They might be within the church. They might be within your home. They might be within your job. They could be all over the board, but they all start from one place, and that is our desires, and that is our passions, not the ones about going on vacation and all of those things, those pleasures and desires. I'm talking about the selfish desires that we all have of what we want in life. And if we don't deal with those, if we don't fight against those at the very beginning stages when they're just a small little thought in our mind, if we don't deal with them then, then they turn into big problems, big fights, big quarrels. And you and I will not stop until we get what we want because we think we're right. And that's why we need to fight it at the onset. We need to fight it at the beginning. And that's point number one this morning is you and I need to fight against self-centered thoughts. Fight against self-centered thoughts. Those thoughts that start with, I deserve this. Right? I should have this. If I was doing that, we would be doing much better. We would be doing this. If I was in charge, I would have made this decision. They need me is another phrase you can use. You see, most of us, when we see the quarrels and the fights, we see the external. But guess what? It started way before that. It started way before that. It started in your mind. It started in your heart. If any of you are familiar with uh, sports and, and entertainment in general, all sports, all athletes, they have an agent, an agent. An agent's job is to promote that person, to promote their client, to put them up on a pedestal, to make them look so good at what they do that they get paid the maximum amount of money. That's the role of an agent, a promoter. 
I want us all to realize we too have a promoter. You didn't know you hired one, but you have one. And he's really good. And he lives within you. I call him your inner promoter. We all have an inner promoter. And our inner promoter shows up in various ways. He can show up in church. Our inner promoter sits in the small group and says, dude, if you were leading this group, everybody would show up. <laughs> if you were leading this group, there wouldn't be anybody that would be silent. Everybody would be talking. Everybody would be talking about the prayer request. Everybody would be on fire, and our group would just be so big. But if only if you were leading. It happens in your job. Man, if you were the boss here, you know, this company would be making a lot more money. Your decisions, people would be happy. All right, not this dude that we got in place right now. You should be the boss, not that person. Guess where else it happens? In your marriage. When you go home in the afternoon, your inner promoter tells you, dude, you don't deserve this. Does she know how hard you work? Does she know everything that you do for her? And this is how she treats you? She doesn't even deserve you. Your inner promoter says that. And my concern with our inner promoter is, we like it. We like when that person tells us how good we are. And we entertain the thought of keeping him around. We don't shut him up, but we tell him, give me more. Give me more. Tell me more. And we let our inner promoter stay around so long because he doesn't see any flaws in us, right? Your inner promoter doesn't tell you that, yeah, you, 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 you're not all that. Right, people outside of yourself will tell you that. But you don't listen to them, you listen to your inner promoter. And if we don't shut our inner promoter up, those, those, those self-thoughts, if we don't quiet that down, then it turns into fights, it turns into quarrels. It turns into us listening to our inner promoter more than we're listening to God. And it's a problem. And it tears down the body of Christ, that inner promoter that you have. First Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Your inner promoter is not trying to do Christ-like things. He wants you to do you things. That's his job. And we need to make sure that we fight against that at the onset when it first starts coming up and not entertain it. But here's one of the biggest components. Here's one of the biggest factors when you don't deal with those self-centered thoughts, when you don't fight against them. The biggest component is your prayer life. Your prayer life. It will have a significant impact on your prayer life. I mean, just think about Adam and Eve back in the garden. Let's go to Genesis 3 for a second. Right after they ate the fruit of the tree, what did they do? They, they went out and said, God, where are you at? I want to talk to you. No, they hid. They hid, right? Why did they hide? Because they were ashamed. They were guilty. And that's what happens to us. And that's why James says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
We don't even ask because we're ashamed. We're guilty. Right? We know we're, we know we're wrong because we lift, listen to those self-centered thoughts far too long. And so then it makes it hard for us to even approach God in prayer and ask for his will to be done because we're so focused on ourselves. All right, but you might be saying, I, I'm praying, I'm praying, so I'm praying. But James also says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask wrongly. I was talking to a friend earlier this week, and they were just telling me how they went years without praying through their teenage years. And it was because they were praying and praying and praying and praying and things just kept happening wrong in their life and bad in their life. And they finally got to the point where it's like, why even pray? Why am I praying? None of my prayers are getting answered. And then later on in life, they finally realized, huh, I know the reason why my prayers weren't getting answered. Because all I was worried about was myself. All I was praying about is things to make my life easier, things to make my life more comfortable here on earth. And I had zero to do with God's will. I wasn't even reading God's word. I was praying for what I wanted, my passions, my desires, and God was not answering those. And so that's why James tackles that side of it too because there were many people I imagine that are like, I'm praying, I'm praying. The question is, what are you praying for? What are you praying for? 1 John 5.14 tells us, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. Here's the the thing about prayer, man, that we all need to make sure that we have foundationally correct and understood. Our prayer life is not about us heaping up prayers, heaping up our wish list to God that he will answer those. Our prayer life should be us calling upon God, appealing to God that his will would be done through our life here on earth. That's the point of prayer. It's not for to tell God what we want. It's for us to align ourselves with what God wants and pray those things. Because guess what? His plan is already set out and it's perfect. If you didn't know this already, your plan is jacked up. It ain't perfect. So you should stop praying your plan because that would be bad for you and everybody else around you. The whole point of prayer life is for us to align ourselves with God's will, that he would work through us in the things that he has planned, that he has part of his will in heaven, that they would come down and they would happen here. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our prayer life is all about, praying that God's will would be done not ours. Back in our passage, picking up in verse 4, just listen to the tone with this, exclamation mark. You adulterous people. You adulterous people. And think about James for a second and, and think about this letter. How is he, how is he phrased the opening statement to what he's about to say in most of this book. My beloved brothers. Y'all, I hope y'all read the book by now. My beloved brothers, right? My beloved brothers. That's how, that's how he says it. Matter of fact, he says it eight times up until this point. My brothers, my beloved brothers, right? It's that, 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 that image of him coming alongside of them and saying, hey, my brothers. Right? Show no partiality as you hold faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers, 
right? My brothers, he's coming alongside him. Here's something that changed. He hadn't called them anything other than my brothers the whole time, and then he goes straight to, you adulterous people. Not, hey, listen, you adulterous people, right? He's getting their attention with this. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That verse right there is probably the most trickiest verse in the entire book. Because right? you're, try, you're trying to figure out what, what, what spirit is he talking about. What, here's the easy way to understand it. There's two, two, two camps here, right? And depending on what commentary you read, what preacher you hear, the spirit is, is, is different there. You could either be talking about the spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that the Holy Spirit yearns jealously when we desire worldly things, when we desire the things of the flesh. Or you could look at it and say, is he talking about spirit as in the human spirit, the one that does desire those earthly and worldly things? Lowercase s, right? God God is jealous over that human spirit that's within us, that he placed within us, that desires things that are not about him, right? So it's either capital spirit, Holy Spirit, or the human spirit that you have to try to figure out, and we don't have enough. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit because that is just in line with everything else that he's spoken about at this point in regards to God's relationship with worldly desires and all those other things. But, you know, either one, the point is God hates the desires of our flesh going towards worldly things and not him. So, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You adulterous people. I mean, just just picture yourself right then and there reading this letter, right? It's like, hey, brother, how you doing? Hey, you know, let's let's make sure we focus on this. You adulterous people. What, what, what? What happened? What, what are you so upset about? What are you mad about? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's getting their attention. He uses that strong language for a reason. Because why? He has hatred towards worldly desires. And you and I should feel that as we read this letter right now because the same thing that they were dealing with back then is the same thing we deal with today, especially as men, is we have worldly desires that seem to creep up all the time. And we need to understand that God hates that. He's at enmity with that. And that's point number two this morning is you and I need to feel God's hatred towards worldly desires. Feel God's hatred towards worldly desires. This needs to be a wake-up call for us, right? Because oftentimes we can get too comfortable with things of the world, things that are here, and think that it's even God-honoring, right? It happens. Worldly desires are the things that take your mind off of Christ, and they fixate them on something of this world to make things in this world comfortable and then to make things in this world uh, better for you. And oftentimes those worldly desires, especially for us as Christian men, they start off as godly things. They start off as godly things. I mean, just think about, you know, your job, for example. Your job. Maybe you were praying for that job. Maybe, maybe you had other people praying for that job. 
And then God finally blessed you with that job because you, during your prayer life, thought about all the ways that you could use this job and still make sure that Christ remained the priority in your life. But then God blessed you with that job. He answered your prayers. And then all of a sudden you got comfortable in that job and that job slowly became the priority. And then Christ is taking the back seat because you're focused on that job. You see, it started off as something that was God honoring. You prayed for it. You were so thankful for it. And maybe now you haven't even been thankful for that job in the last three months because you're so focused on trying to make the best out of that job to the best of your ability. Right? Money is another example. God may have blessed you with money for finances for whatever reason. Finances were bad, and then God turned something around in your life, and you got blessed with money. Well, then you got a little bit of money, and you wanted to make more money and more money and more money. And something that God blessed you with, something that you prayed for, I want to use it for your glory, God. I want to give to missions. I want to give to the church. I want to give to Compass 2020. And then all of a sudden, you got a hold of it, and then it's like it's mine. This, this is Thank you, God, but this is mine. I'm going to work on it now. Right? All of these things happen. They start off as good things. God gave you a car, a house. You want it bigger and better. Right? And so you, you get something from God and take your mind off of it. It's kind of like what the Israelites did as they were in the wilderness, wandering around. Right? God gives them manna. And the whole point is God is moving them. It's not about like, hey, let me make sure I have a good meal here. That, that's not the plan. The plan is God wants to move them because he has a bigger plan, a bigger purpose at hand. But what do they do? I'm, 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 I want something better. I want some meat, man. I mean, I don't blame them, but hey, I want, some, I want some meat. They were focused on, I want something else other than what you've provided me with. What you've provided me with is, is just fine. It's getting me by and it keeps my eyes on a mission, but I want something better, something better that's going to put my eyes off of you and here on this life and making this life comfortable. God hates that. He hates when we take our eyes off of him and put it on something here, worldly desires. Right, he gives us that example in, in Hosea chapter 2. All throughout Hosea, right, he, get, he tells the prophet to go, to go marry this prostitute. And it is a symbol, it is a sign of Israel towards God. Right? Israel, or God has provided for Israel every step of the way. He has met every need that they have. But since it's not exactly what they want, those inner thoughts that they're having, then he, he uses this situation to say, go marry this prostitute as a symbol of how Israel is towards their God. Hosea 2.5 says, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. All right, she's married, but she's going after her lovers. She's going to find what her desires want, who give me my bread and my water, right? Her husband is providing, but she wants other nourishment. She wants nourishment that her heart desires, my wool and my flax, right? She's got clothing. She's got all those. She wants better, my oil and my drink. She wants her pleasures and her desires. She doesn't want the, the basics. She wants even more. She wants what her heart desires, Right? It's not focusing on what God has given us here and keeping our eyes on the mission, keeping our eyes on God's will. It's taking what God has given us and trying to make that ours, trying to set root here in this world. Those desires, right? those worldly desires that we have. 
I mean, this world is filled with them. The world is filled with things that are trying to get our attention off of God. I mean, even good things, like your job. God created us to work, and we are to work. It is a good thing. But again, a good thing can easily be turned into a worldly desire. I mean, some of you are are leaving here today, and you will go to your job that you've worked 50, 60, 70 hours this week. 50, 60, 70 hours. And I don't know every situation. Maybe you have to do that. But the question that I want you to constantly ask yourself is, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Because we need to understand that reason behind it. Because guess what? Your coworker, your non-Christian coworker that's working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, I can guarantee you they're probably doing it because they want more money. They're probably doing it because they want better status, better title. And they want the pats on the back. But why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Is it still to honor God and to glorify God with with all you're doing? Because it could be. You could be so focused at work with sharing the gospel and discipling people within your workplace and being a lampstand in your workplace, which I would say, praise God, good. Excel still more. But oftentimes we start to work 50 or 60 or 70 hours and it has good intentions, but then it turns to worldly desires. And we don't even realize it because we haven't asked ourselves the question, why are we doing this? cannot serve two masters, right? You cannot be focused on investing in internal, eternal things and then also investing in this life. One or the other. One's got to give, right? And we need to think about judgment day more often, men. Think about judgment day more often. I guarantee you God's not going to ask you, hey, hey, how's your 401k? Those investments, how did they do? Right? Your zip code. God's not going to ask any of that. What is he going to ask? What did you do with what I gave you? I gave you that. What did you do with it? Who did you impact for the gospel? Say, we just need to realize, because sometimes we can think just because God hasn't disciplined us that he's okay with what we're doing. Understand this, man. Because God has shown patience and mercy in your life with your worldly desires, don't take that as God sitting back just saying, hey, you're doing good, or being okay with what you're doing. If you know you're pursuing worldly desires and your eyes haven't been fixed on Christ, then you need to repent and, and make that change today because God isn't going to continue to be patient with your worldly desires with something that he hates It's enmity with God. Friendship with the world. Flirting with the world is enmity with God. Hostile to God. He hates that. He abhors that. And a lot of that just starts off by asking yourself, why am I doing this? And making sure it still aligns with I'm doing this because it is God honoring. And not I'm doing this because this is what I want. And then I'll just say it's God honoring. Because look, you can fool me. You can fool the men around you. But God knows your heart, and that's what really matters. And we need to be praying, praying that God would reveal those worldly desires if we have them. Because as I said in verse 5, God is a jealous God. Right? He is a jealous God. 
and he will by no means accept anything other than being all in, having wholehearted devotion to him. It's the name of this whole series, right? Being all in. God wants all of us. And he will have it no other way. He's a jealous God. And he yearns for us to be all in for him. But even if that stung a little bit, and that was convicting because maybe you haven't asked yourself why I'm doing what I'm doing, and maybe you've, you, you've floated towards it being more of a worldly desire, more of making life great here as opposed to investments for eternal things, verse 6 is a beautiful thing to read. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you flirted with the world, if you've, if you've immersed yourself in the world, God gives more grace. He gives more grace. But it's only effective if you take action and turn from that. His grace is only effective if you take action and turn from your worldly desire. And you turn humbly. And he tells us exactly how we should do that. Back in our passage, starting in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's going back to the Old Testament, right? When the priests would get ready to go into the tabernacle, they would have this big golden basin there, the bronze basin, that they would have to cleanse their hands. Right? Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In order to receive that grace and the exaltation, that lifting up from the Lord, we need to humble ourselves and we need to turn. And you can summarize all of that up to say we need to repent. We need to repent. And that's our third point this morning is you need to know that repentance leads to that exaltation. Repentance leads to spiritual growth. Repentance leads to spiritual growth. Some of us can become stagnant in our, in our Christian walk because we haven't repented. Because we know we've been wrong. We know we've sinned and we just try to sweep it under a rug and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm back to following you. No, we need to repent. We need to come before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We need to come before the Lord and admit that we were wrong. We need to come before the Lord and repent, turn from what we were doing. Be sorrowful for that sin that we have in our life. And then if we humbly approach him that way, he will exalt you. He will exalt you. He will grow you spiritually. He will sanctify you more and more. Some of you are missing that sanctification in your life because you lack repentance in your life. We say that word repent all the time. Repent, 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 repent. And I don't ever want to assume that everybody just knows what repentance is and what it looks like and how it needs to show up in our life. But I think it would be a great time right now to foundationally go back and talk about the steps of repentance because James gives us that right here in this passage. He gives his audience, his readers, the, 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 the formula for repentance. This is exactly what they need to do. And there's four steps for us. Four steps 
to repent from specifically worldly desires, but any type of repentance. And that first one, letter A, is we need to humbly, humbly surrender selfishness. Humbly surrender selfishness. Be able to go before the Lord and say, I, I was wrong. I took my eyes off of you, and I was focused on my worldly desires. And then surrendering is getting ourselves back in line with God's will, saying, you're the boss of my life, you're the Lord of my life, and I want to get back to that, right? There's a repentance that we get initially with our salvation, right, repentance and faith, that is turning our whole life, but there's an ongoing repentance that all of us should have as, as Christians, when we sin, we need to get back in line and repent. World War II, there was a famous general, Douglas MacArthur. When it came time for the Japanese to surrender, they had this official surrendering moment where the Japanese general and Douglas MacArthur went to meet. And the Japanese general stuck his hand out to shake his hand to say, we surrender. But Douglas MacArthur said, sir, I, I can't shake your hand. He told him, I can't shake your hand right now. I can't shake your hand until you give up that sword that's on your side. Give me the sword first, and then I'll shake your hand. See, most of us as Christians, we want to say, I repent, I surrender, God, but we want to keep our sword. We want to keep our will. We want to keep doing the things that we want to do, but then we want to shake God's hand. No, Douglas MacArthur said, I need full surrender. I need everything on you, all the weapons, anything that's going to possibly take you back to who you were. I need all of that, and then we can shake hands. You and I need to fully surrender everything when we repent. Fully surrender everything when we repent. Humbly surrender our selfishness. Letter B, grieve over our sin. Grieve over our sin. We need to be appalled what we've done to Christ. Christ died for you. Christ died for you, not that you would continue to live your life, but that you would live for him. And we should have a deep sorrow. Right? Jesus said that in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Right? We should mourn because of the sin that we've committed against Christ. Isaiah, if you remember back in Isaiah 6, when he saw God, he, 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 he was just, he was blown away, right? Hand over his mouth. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? He was in disbelief. He was in sorrow, shamed. We need to grieve over our sin, not just be like, ah, you know what? I messed up again. Sorry, God. No, we need to grieve over our sin because your sin is what put Jesus on the cross. My sin is what put Jesus on the cross. The punishment that he took on the cross was for you. It was for me not to keep doing what we're doing. And so we should grieve every time we pursue worldly things and get off track. And we need to repent of that. Let us see. We need to aggressively guard against Satan. Resist the devil. Aggressively guard against Satan. Not just, oh, you know what, I'll try harder next time. But we need to put measures in place to make sure that it just doesn't happen again. Right? If something got stolen out of your car, I guarantee you, you would, you would think twice about locking the door, setting the alarm, and next time. You wouldn't just say, nah, that was one time. It's not going to happen again. Right? You would take extreme measures to make sure the same thing does not happen again. We need to do that with sin and worldly desires, whatever that is, accountability, uh, you know, 
being in God's word, one, praying about it more, but we need to do things in our life and make adjustments to aggressively guard, protect us from falling again. Letter D is we need to be like Christ, right? Draw near to God is you need to be like Christ. For those of you that are married in here, think about it from the standpoint of when you were pursuing your wife. When she was not your wife, you wanted to do all the things that she wanted to do because you had a goal in mind. You wanted to marry this gal, right? You went and saw movies you would never see. You went to ice cream parlors you would never go to. You did things that she wanted to do. You were all about her because you wanted a relationship with her. We need to be all about Christ. We need to do the things that Christ wants us to do. We need to read about Christ more. We need to be like Christ. And when we seek to be like Christ, he will draw near to us. He will reveal more of himself to us. When we be like Christ, we should pray like Christ, love like Christ, share the gospel like Christ, seek peace like Christ, and above all, be humble like Christ. And when we're humble like Christ, James tells us, you will be exalted. You're not going to lift yourself up by your own measures. God's going to lift you up. The Spirit's going to lift you up. Jesus is going to lift you up. He's going to exalt you. He's going to spiritually grow you when you pursue being like him. James knew what it meant to be like Jesus, and it wasn't some secret sauce that he had, right? It's half-brother, but at the end of the day, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you want to go a little, little bit deeper here, go read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Read that and then come back to read James. A lot of it is the same exact thing. Right? And so here you have the pastor of this church giving his church wisdom. And oftentimes we're like, ah, man, I, mean, I wish I had the wisdom. He's reading the Sermon on the Mount and saying a lot of the same things. Right? He talks about you, you, you murder Earlier in our passage, right, where does he get that from? Jesus equates anger with what? Murder. Right, Matthew 7 says, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Right, he's talking about that at the beginning of our message. Jesus talks about friendship with the world, Matthew 6. I quoted it already in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. That's Jesus. Now he's saying the mourners, the ones that mourn are the ones that are going to be blessed. Be wretched and mourn. Right? You want to know how to be like Christ? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read the words of Jesus. Read what Jesus was preaching to his audience. It's the same thing we need to be doing today. Be like Christ. Something else Jesus said, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. And that requires us to fight those selfish thoughts that we have. We all have them, men. Shut that inner promoter up. He does no good for you. He's a horrible promoter when it comes to being Christ-like. We have to stop it at the beginning before it turns into something worse. We have to cut off those worldly desires, those worldly desires that fixate our minds on this world and try to get us comfortable here and know that our life should be full of making investments for eternity. Investment for eternity. Not to get a bigger house, not to get a bigger car, not to get a, a pat on the back here from, uh, from man, but we want eternal things here. Most importantly, we need to get our eyes off of this world and humbly seek after Christ. 
humbly seek after Christ and what he desires, not what we desire. Make sure that you examine your heart each and every day that it hasn't drifted towards worldly desires. And if it has, God gives more grace. He gives you grace to be able to repent and get back in the saddle and pursue Christ's honoring things. Pursue things that matter not just for here, but for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you for this direction that we need so often. We need it daily, Lord, because there's a daily battle that we, we have with our flesh that wages war against our soul, that tries to get us to, to, to focus our minds on this world. Even the most seasoned Christian in, in, in this room, we all have those desires. And Lord, if we look past it and think we don't, that's a huge problem in itself. We become callous to it. We don't even see it. And Lord, so I just pray that we would have a sensitivity towards worldly desires. We would understand that you hate it. Not that you're okay with it because nothing's happening, but you hate our worldly desires and you want nothing to do with it. So Lord, if that's anyone in this room today, which I'm sure there are a handful, Lord, I pray that they would repent, that they would grieve over their sin. They would surrender everything, all of those worldly desires and get back to pursuing you as we should do and as we need to do. And it's the only thing that really matters at the end of this life, because everything else will burn and pass away. But those things that are done for Christ, those things will transcend this world. So help us to be more focused on that, Lord, please. In Jesus' name, amen.